Well, you've probably heard the probing question before. If someone were to put you on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And it's a good question to consider because the Bible says over and over, it's, it's not only what we, what we say, but what we do. Our walk is the evidence of salvation. First John chapter 1, verse 6 says, If we say we have fellowship with Him, yet walk in darkness, we, we lie and do not practice the truth. What, what consistently comes out of our lives is either an evidence of Christ or a lack of Him. Because as much as I wish it wasn't so, spirituality is not static. Wouldn't you, doesn't your flesh just want to coast sometimes? And yet that's not possible. Spirituality is not static. There is no neutrality. The world, the flesh, and the devil is constantly at work, or Christ and His Spirit is constantly at, at work, either Either your sin nature is at work with its desires and corruptions, making you into your own image if you're unsaved, or Christ's life is in transforming you into His. And the Bible teaches us that our yielding, our effort, our pursuit has a lot to do with how much, how far along you get in that process of sanctification. So, So we're looking at the primary features that should be in and should be growing in the Christian life. We're calling it the crucial characteristics of the the Christian life. Commitment to Scripture, love, Christ-like love, not worldly love, a life of servanthood, and then forgiveness. Committed to Scripture, love, a life of servanthood, and then forgiveness, to be forgiven, And to forgive is at the very core of being a Christian because it's how God describes himself. We saw that last week in Exodus 34. He is a God who's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And I am so thankful for that. In fact, Jesus declares, doesn't he, that what was at the center of his mission was forgiveness. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. John 3, 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. 1 Timothy 1, 15, It's this trustworthy saying, worthy of all acceptance, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul says, Of whom I am chief. You and I have been offered lavish mercy and forgiveness from the Lord And that's how He wants us to forgive. In fact, the Bible says if we refuse to do that, it indicates a very serious problem. In the parable of Matthew 18, we touched on this last week, where Jesus is answering Peter. You remember Peter's question, how many times do I forgive if a man repents? Three times or seven? And uh, God answers with something that's piercingly clear. Jesus tells Peter, we're to forgive like God does. It's not three, it's not seven, it's 490 times, meaning the number is so high that no one could ever possibly keep track of the offenses to decide whether you've reached the limit. Now I'm not going to forgive you. You're over the limit. And that's precisely the point. Keeping count is not true forgiveness. God does not keep count. If an offense is serially forgiven... 
it can't be held against the offender or even accounted on a, a list. In the parable that follows that, after Jesus teaches Peter that, makes that statement, he tells a parable, he tells a story about how serious God considers our forgiveness of, of others. You remember it's a, probably a story about a slave and, uh, who owes a king a massive debt and he can't repay it. it and the king calls for collection and uh, the man comes uh, with uh, 10,000 talents. It's an impossible amount to repay, several million dollars in today's, in today's money. And, and the debt is rightly owed the king and his possessions and his family are going to be sold to recover even a small portion of the debt, but it can never be repaid. And then the man, when he comes before the, the, the king, falls down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And couldn't repay, but he acknowledges the debt and he comes the right, he comes the right way. And, and so the master in that story was moved with compassion and released him and forgave him the, the debt. It's a powerful picture of, of God and the sinner. The sinner comes before God, convicted of an unpayable debt, and he says, I will pay what, whatever I can, even, if, even in hell, because that's what I deserve. And then God graciously, mercifully forgives the debt and releases the, the sinner. It's beautiful. So what should a forgiven debtor like that do in return for other people that that sin against them. And that's really the whole point of the, of the parable. He should treat others the way he was treated. The man who was forgiven a massive debt turns around in this story, though, and won't forgive his servant a much smaller debt. The servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That's a few hundred dollars, or a few dollars, I should say. He laid his hands on him. He took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down at his feet, begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I'll pay you all. The exact same thing that this man says to the king. And he would not. And he went and threw him into prison until he should pay the debt. And the king hears about it. And here is the king's response. You wicked servant. I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should you not also have compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. And the parable ends with a terrifying hammer blow. Jesus says, the point of that story is, so my heavenly Father will also do to you if each of you, from his heart, does not forgive his brother his trespasses. That's heavy stuff, isn't it? So heavy, MacArthur says the parable is so severe that there are many people who conclude that Jesus can't be possibly talking about Christians. But it's very clear that he is. The, the man who wouldn't forgive was a forgiven man, and he calls him his brother in verse 35. And what it tells us is that the Lord will deal very harshly with his own children who will not forgive someone, someone else. That's the point of the, the story. If, if you aren't forgiven by God, you won't forgive. If, but if you are and you don't forgive, it's a contradiction of who you are and you should expect harsh discipline until you will. 
Isn't that what Jesus says to his disciples in the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And in the, the Matthew account, he ends that whole Lord's Prayer with this statement. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. Unforgiveness is a serious, serious thing. And if you're holding that in your heart this morning, it may be why you are facing many difficulties that you're blaming on a lot of different things. And that's what we dealt with last week. Philemon was called to forgive Onesimus. And we saw how to apply that. It's not just, I'm sorry and everything goes away. God has a process where there's acknowledgement and rights and all of those things. We looked at that. If you weren't here, you can get that message. But this morning, we're going to look at it from the other side of the coin. The angle of the forgiver last week, and this morning we're going to look at it from the point of the one who is forgiven, like me, and hopefully like you. What if you are like Onesimus, who needs forgiveness? What if you have tasted sin and you've wasted a large part of your life and now you have come to Christ? How does God view you? How should others view you through biblical forgiveness? If you're sitting here this morning saying, I'm not like the wicked slave who was unforgiving. I, I, I know what I did. I'm profoundly sorry for what I did, but I can't get those years back. Well, what, what is there in the Bible for, for me? Is there, is there any help for me? Is there any hope for me? And, and of course there is. You can't change the past. But if you look to Christ and you've been forgiven, then you have a chance to live different from this day forward. And that's the underlying message in Colossians chapter 4. So I want you to turn there, Colossians chapter 4, where God, through the Apostle Paul, communicates some things about Onesimus. This is at the end of the letter. And we've already looked at Tychicus and used him for servanthood. And we looked at Philemon... Now this morning we're going to look at it from Onesimus' point of view and see what the Apostle Paul says. How does Paul describe this man? And we're going to learn something about how God views a forgiven person. And we can connect Philemon and Colossians because it's the same author, it's the same location, it's the same participants. Verses 7 through 9 speak about our man Onesimus here. Colossians 4, 7 through 9. Look at what it says. It says, To all of my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances, that he may encourage your hearts. And, and Watch verse 9. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number. They, plural, will inform you, the church, about the whole situation here. The situation of the apostles, uh, the Apostle Paul and his ministry. Now, those are some praiseworthy words, aren't they? I mean, if you didn't know what Philemon, the, the letter to Philemon, told us, you wouldn't think anything about this man Onesimus. You would think... He's a pretty fine, upstanding Christian guy. He must be serving the Apostle Paul all along. But but we do know the backstory of Onesimus. 
And Paul says he's a faithful and beloved brother. Is, is Paul talking about the same guy? Yes, he is. Well, maybe it's after he's already got Philemon's forgiveness and he's done penance and, and he's been faithful for years and years and years. That's whenever Paul's writing. No. In fact, this is before he ever even goes to Philemon. And if he got saved the day that he showed up at Rome, the length of time that could have passed is only two years. And he probably meandered around Rome for a while. So you've got a guy who's been saved for about a year and a half, max two years, before he ever goes back to Philemon and carries the letter and faces the music. And the Apostle Paul says he is a faithful and beloved brother. He's a man with a very sinful past. But Paul describes him the way he is, not the way he was. Aren't you thankful for that? I'm really thankful God describes me for the way that I am. Not the way that I was. And I think, based upon what Paul says here about Onesimus, in all of that context, he makes three descriptions. There's three descriptions about Onesimus that show how a forgiven person can make up for for lost time. How does God view you? And what could your life be after forgiveness? The first thing the Apostle Paul points out of the way he describes him is, is his past does not negate his future. His past does not negate his future, and neither does yours. His position was based on the, on the present, and his profit to the Lord and the church was determined by his, his ongoing faithfulness. Do you have a sinful past? Have you wasted part of your life like, like Onesimus? Are you still wasting it? What I want to tell you today, you're, you're not beyond the reach of God or the usefulness of Christ. And if you'll listen today. Let's look at his first statement about Onesimus. His past does not negate his future. Verse 9, Paul begins with describing Onesimus as a faithful and beloved brother. He's trumpeted forgiveness here. A letter to the, to the whole church. Paul describes Onesimus with two adjectives attached to one relationship. He's, he's faithful, he's pistos, he's beloved, he's agapetos, and he's a brother. And the NASV and the ESV says, our faithful brother, our faithful brother connected to Paul, our faithful brother connected to the church, making it even more personal. He's a faithful and beloved brother. Now, what comes to your mind when you think of, when you hear faithful? Well, this word whenever it's used in the original language, one of the Greek lexicons gave this definition. A person who shows themselves faithful in the transaction of business, the execution of commands, and the discharge of official duties. That's what faithful is. That's the very opposite of Onesimus, wasn't it? He was a runaway who was unfaithful in his master's business. He disobeyed the execution of his master's commands. He didn't discharge his official duties. In fact, he used them to steal from the company. And the Bible says if a servant in a household must be anything, he must be trustworthy. And Onesimus stole them. He's far from faithful before. He didn't deserve that title based on his past. In fact, he was very unfaithful. But Onesimus' future was not determined by his past because he'd been transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's the same for you. 
The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he's a what? He's a new creature. He's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new, and that's what's happened. And the Bible's full of statements like that. First Corinthians, such were past tense, some of you, but you've been washed. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives me. And the life lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And as I said, you may say, well, he earned that after many, many years of living a different life. But it was less than two. It's a short amount of time, and he earned the title faithful, even though his whole life before had proven otherwise. And that's how you make up for lost time. You give your life wholly and completely to Christ. And God can do in a short amount of time in your character what you've tried your entire life to do. You're struggling with sin. You can't overcome something. How about turning it over to the Lord Jesus? He can do with it way better than you can. First thing he'll do is he'll take it to the cross and he'll kill it. And then he'll empower you with the Holy Spirit to overcome it. Do you have a past? Is it ugly? Filled with sin? With wickedness? You have no idea how really ugly it was. But in Christ, all of the past is overcome in the cross. I mean, that is the promise of the gospel, isn't it? I mean, if there is no promise that all of your past can be placed under the blood, then we're just a bunch of law keepers here talking about Jesus, right? I mean, forgiveness coming the right way through Christ alone is the great promise of the gospel. That's why it's good news. It's news about what God has already accomplished, uh, already accomplished on your behalf. You, you can't change the life you lived or what you were. But if you come to Jesus, you're not that anymore. It might take a while for your testimony to catch up with the reality of the theology. But in your heart and in you as a person, you're not the man or the woman that you used to be before you came to Jesus. And that's the power of Christ to change a person. You're not only a new creature, but you also have a new position. That's the second thing that Paul says about Onesimus. You have a new position before God, but also before other people, other believers in particular. His past didn't control his future, and his position had changed. And that's now based on the present. Look at verse 9, if you will, again. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, who is one of, of you. He's one of you. Now, I don't think Paul is saying here he's a... He's a West Virginian, or he's a Colossian, or he's a Virginian. He, he's, he's from your area. I'm sending the guy from your area back to your area. He's writing to a church, and he's writing to the believers at, at Colossae. He's, and he calls him a beloved brother. As far as the law was concerned, as far as the Roman law was concerned, Onesimus was a wanted man. He owed a debt to the law that he might have to repay. That's why Paul sends him back to Philemon and leaves the choice in Philemon's hands of whether he turns him over to the law courts or not. And Philemon had every right to do that. But as far as God was concerned, and as far as other believers were concerned, 
This man was forgiven, a beloved brother who was faithful now and one of their, of their number. And Philemon had the right to his property as his servant. But Philemon is defined as a member of the body of Christ. Now, now we don't know how Onesimus became Philemon's servant. We, we don't know. If it would have been normal, it was probably a repayment of a debt, like that story that we heard in the parable. So here's a person who owes a landowner or somebody a great debt, and they can't repay that debt, so they, they give themselves the, into employment to, to, the, to the householder. And, and then he begins to, to work uh, in order to repay the, repay the debt. And then typically after the debt was repaid... That servant was treated so well, usually by the master, he's living a whole lot better off as part of the household than he was before. A slave then is not like a slave now, what you think of, where they're, they're working in the, in, in the fields. They could have been a, a slave could have been a doctor, he could have been a lawyer, he could have been a teacher, he could have been a household servant, he could have been any number of things. He was just owned by the master. And so at the end of the, of the debt repayment, the, the servant would typically say, you know what, I really like it here. I kind of like my job. I kind of want to stay. Are you okay with that? Yeah, sure. And you became part of the family. Now, we don't know how Onesimus came to, to Philemon. But Philemon obviously didn't feel that way. Or, I mean, sorry, Onesimus obviously didn't feel that way about Philemon because he ran away. And we know from what Paul says about Philemon that he was a good master. He was a believer. This wasn't some harsh taskmaster. So, I mean, all of the blame is on Onesimus. And we don't know exactly how he came, but, but he ran away. And when he was caught, he had to be returned to his master and tried under the law. But then God puts his finger on Onesimus and, and convicts him and saves him, and he runs into the apostle Paul. And he's now returning and Paul tells the Colossian church that the man they knew before is not returning the same in the same position as he was before. He's not just a servant in, in Philemon's household. He's one of your number. He's a believer. He's a full member of the house church there and the, and the local body. There's no stigma as far as God is concerned. And there are many responsibilities to make whatever right that he could, no restrictions though, before Paul calls him one of their own. There's no partial membership in, in case he does it again or he's one of your number. That doesn't mean that there's not discipleship or other things that go along with that process. But he's one of your number. Why? Because our position in Christ defines how we relate to others. And how someone else's position in Christ defines how we relate to them. You're either in the church or you're outside of the church. You're either part of Israel or you weren't in the Old Testament. You're either in Christ or outside of Christ this morning. You're either going to heaven or you're going to hell. Those are the only two options. There is no in-between, and there is no in-between church member. There's no state of limbo. There's no membership purgatory where you, you, you purge off your sins until you can become part of the, of the body. And we don't get to make extra rules or set extra hoops in that case. 
Matthew 18 again. This is why I've said it's a pivotal chapter as far as applying forgiveness and seeking forgiveness. And you remember two chapters before that in Matthew 16 where Jesus tells Peter that based on his profession of faith that Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. On that declaration of the gospel, I will build my church, right? Jesus is building His church. He's building His church through the gospel. And He'll use us as means to proclaim that to, to the world. And then He makes those interesting statements about whatever you, you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose will be, will be loosed. What does Jesus mean by that? He means exactly what's applied in, in, this, in what I'm telling you here. We declare what heaven binds and what heaven looses. The church doesn't loose things and then heaven obeys. Heaven declares what's bound, what's sin and what's not. And heaven declares what's loosed because of the gospel. And then we declare that to other people. That's how we operate. If you repent, you'll be forgiven. If, if you don't, you won't. We have the right by God to declare that because that's exactly what God's Word says. And here... Jesus says our position in Christ, the way He defines us and how we relate to others, is based on whether we're in Christ or outside of Christ. You have to be very careful removing a a standard that the Bible has made, like we saw last week. Don't skip over last week's message and just focus on today. But don't highlight last week's message and not focus on, on, on the significance of forgiveness Today, you say, well, they, you remove something or, or add something. You, you be careful. Onesimus' position with God and the Lord's church is based on His present, and that's a wonderful truth. I have on my wall, a um, in my office, uh, a, a four-by-eight sheet of plywood with a... a Four by uh, two by sixes around it, routed, stained with a picture of the map of the world and a little little tag right below the world with, with the Great Commission on it. And it was made for me by hand, nothing fancy, but it's extremely precious to me. It was made for me by a man that I baptized within about three months of, of coming to the first church that, that I pastored. And on the back of that, there's, there's, a, there's his name, and then there's the verse that says, Let him who stole steal no more, only working with good with his hands. And this man was now using his hands for the Lord and as he once used the hands, his hands for the devil. Have you been a thief? You're not known as a Christian thief. You're just known as a Christian. Isn't that good? You've been a liar or a fornicator or a drunk. You're not known as anything other than your position in Christ and your present faithfulness. And the other way around is true as well. If, if you know Christ and you're not walking with Him today, your usefulness is based on your present, not your past. Your position may not change. You may still be a believer. But your usefulness to the Lord is based on your present, 
Spurgeon said, you don't offer a guest in your home stale bread, so don't offer God yesterday's life and labor. What are you doing now? In the present for it. Well, let me give you the last one. Onesimus' past didn't negate his future. His position was based on the present. And his profit to the Lord and to God's people was determined by his ongoing faithfulness. Look at verse 9. This is interesting. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number? They, that's Onesimus and Tychicus, will inform you about the whole situation here. They'll make known to you all things which are happening here. Now, think about that statement in the context of what's going on. Onesimus is coming back to own up to his crime. And with this letter, there's a letter to Philemon. And he's with the guy bringing the letter. He's got the letter going back to the guy. And yet, in the letter to the church, the Apostle Paul is is saying, he's going to give a missions report to you of what's been going on since he's been saved and what's going on with me in, in Rome. First order of business is to seek reconciliation and but Paul expects him to do that and much, much more. He expects him to address the church and give a missions report. Paul doesn't say, if Philemon forgives you, if Onesimus does the right thing, then, then he's going to report about all things. He says he's going to inform you about the whole situation. And then you go to Philemon, the, book, the letter again, Paul knows Philemon well enough to know that as a Christian, he would not only forgive, but he'd go far beyond what the apostle was asking. Remember that. And he also knows the power of Christ in Onesimus well enough to know that not only would Onesimus do the right thing, but he believes that so much he gives him a job to do right after he does it. And Onesimus once served himself in unrighteousness and now serves Christ. And I want you to note that he's doing the same basic job of being a servant that he was doing before he came to the Lord. But everything was different because he was a new creation. I mean, once you come to the Lord, you have the same skills, the same family, the same job, but but it's all used now for a new master. What was Onesimus doing? He was Philemon's servant, and he started serving the Apostle Paul as soon as he got saved. And now he's serving the Apostle Paul. But he's, he's, he's got a new master, doesn't he? God may not change your job on earth, but He'll change your usefulness to Him. Your profit to the Lord, you may have been unprofitable. You may not have been profitable to anyone like Onesimus. In Philemon, he says, which in times past, this slave, he was unprofitable, but now is profitable both to you and to me and to the Lord. The irony is the name Onesimus means profitable. That's what his name means. And he didn't live up to his name before. He was far, far from that. But when he got saved, that 